Welcome back to Progress Over Perfection. I'm your host, Russell Fugit, and I'm just so proud of my amazing wife. First episode has gotten about 60, I think over 60 listens. So thank you guys so much. Please do us a favor and share this podcast. Please post it, share it, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your sisters, tell your girlfriends, tell your brothers, whoever you think can benefit from this. I just think there's some wonderful things coming. I think God's doing some things here. So I know you guys will enjoy this second episode. So I'm going to get out the way. Thank you for listening to Progress Over Perfection. Again, subscribe, share, leave us a review on Apple and all the podcast platforms. Enjoy, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Episode two, Progress Over Perfection. We got perfection in that little box. Get out of the box. Let's make some progress. So we're going to pick up on my lovely wife, Sila Fugit's story. Hello, Sila. Hello. Thank you guys for coming back. I didn't scare you away, I see. So oh, I appreciate oh, okay. that. All right. All right. Well, we you know, got a lot of encouragement from the first episode, especially for moms and, and what you experienced with your burn and, yes. and growing up in church in the middle of five kids. So, you know, go back and check that out if you have not already. But um, I'm going to pick up the story, you know, getting again, laying, laying the groundwork, the foundation here. So, you know, tell us about, um, you know, a little bit about high school and, you know, and then and graduating and then moving out of your parents' house before the age of 18. My goodness. <laughs> so I, um, when it was my turn to go to high school, I went to public elementary and middle. Um, and when it's time, I was supposed to go to the local high school in Hyattsville, which would have been Northwestern. My parents were not going to send me to Northwestern, although my two older sisters went and one was still there. Uh, but they were just like, it's getting too wild. And they decided to put me in Christian school. Um, so they put me in a small little Christian school. And uh, it was interesting. Most of our classes were through paces, which were like books. <laughs> it was like, here's your notebook. Here, teach yourself. Um, it was not as like self-directed books. Yes. Like, you make it like they had books in high school. I guess no, you're no, supposed no. to have books in high school. Well, I know that. Oh, you sure? I didn't know if you school. Well, you know, that's school with a little bootleg. So <laughs> I don't know. No, they would give you like these large pamphlets uh-huh. and it would be like, here, read this and okay. do the work and then turn it in. Oh. There was no instruction. Oh. <laughs> there was no like class discussions. It was, oh. they called them paces. And so a lot of it was self-taught and someone, as someone who is dyslexic, that was not working very well for me. I, I gotta be honest. That was very, very tough for me. Um, so I would say high school was, was not the easiest. Um, it was small. It was strict. We wore uniforms. I mean, God forbid you didn't wear that daggone crossbow. If y'all don't know what that is, Google it. It's this hideous thing they make you wear. The crossbow? Like yes. A, like bows and arrows? No, no, no. <laughs> like you had a uniform and you had to have this plaid skirt oh. and a white polo or okay. a dress shirt, white uh-huh. dress shirt. And then you had to wear this thing around your neck that was oh, like a choker that yeah, crossed yeah, in the yeah, middle and buttoned. Oh. It was, and it matched your skirt. It was hideous. I'm okay. Sure you guys are so cute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, so it was it was a a sheltered environment, I will say. And being coming from church being my outlet and then school being my other outlet, which I that was pretty much my only two outlets. I didn't really do anything outside of that. Um, It was two very strict, structured environments. So I would honestly say that I kind of grew up naive if I'm being honest. Um, There was no drinking, there was no partying in my home, there was no drugs. Um, You know, we lived a a pretty 
wholesome, quote unquote, strict in. in no, that's not bad in of itself. But there was no, no there was no conversation about these things. No, and there was no conversation okay, okay. about it really much either. I mean, I think I did the Dare program at one point in middle school. What was that like? Dog, like the dog that tells you yeah, don't do drugs. Right, right, right. right, right, right yeah. This is the Reagan era. And stuff. then the mom, mom yeah, against just, drunk driving. Just say no. Yeah, yeah, mom, yeah. You know all of that stuff. So Mothers you know, those were mad, things. Mad. Two Ds. Yeah, you. yeah. I remember we, we yes. had that. Yeah. So we had that type of teaching, but like in high school, there was no sex ed. There was no, you know, talk about those kind of things. So I want to add that because as we get into this episode and some things are going to come out, some of y'all might think this woman is crazy. Why did she put up with this? Why did she deal with this? And I am asking myself that now in my forties, because going back and reliving and writing down and thinking through some of these things, as I share them with you, it's, it's heavy and it's been hard for me. I texted Russell yesterday in tears saying, I can't believe I put up with all this for so long. So I want to be able to have you guys understand um, I was very sheltered. I never drank growing up. I didn't have my first drink until I was 32. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even like champagne at a wedding. Mm-hmm. I never did weed in high school. I never tried drugs. Um, I just, it was a different upbringing than maybe some of my other counterparts and moms. <laughs> okay. I'm like, currently look, 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 you look at me. Boy, you wild. Well, no. <laughs> no just well, I, I say, when, guess when you think I had my first beer? Probably at a family event uh-huh. in your teenage years. There you go. That's what you said. <laughs> okay. okay, good. Wow. Okay. Guess you know me well. I know you well. I don't, even, I don't think I even really finished it, but it was certainly, you know, limited to that. I wasn't out on the weekend in high school. Certainly was not drinking. Yes. Anyway. So I graduated in 1996. Um, oh, while you just, I was dating yourself, yeah, right, date myself. Right. I don't care. 90, you I know, the nineties were great. Um, <laughs> I um, was always uber independent, um, and I'll I'll tell you guys why. Honestly, when my mom stopped, wouldn't like let me shop at the clothing stores and the stores I wanted to, and she made me go to like Dress Barn or like some of these old lady shops as I viewed them at that time. I was like, oh no, I'm getting a job. I got to buy my own clothes. Like I'm not being stuck with all this. So I started working at 13, um, worked illegally at a flower shop. They didn't ask and I didn't tell that I wasn't 16. So, and they paid cash under the table. So I did that until senior year of high school. I started taking dental assisting courses. Um, my oldest sister was in dentistry and I was so intrigued by it. And so I started my dental career pretty young. So by the time I graduated, I had already had a job. I was working full time in an office um, and I decided I was ready to move out. My parents were not ready for me to move out, uh, but I was fiercely independent and I wanted to move out. So I remember the people that owned, it was a small, cute little, like almost Melrose place kind of apartment building. There was like six units in the building and their son happened to live in the building. Um, They ended up renting to me, but they had to have my parents' permission to be able to rent to that? Because I was still young. You, you were still young. Well, how I was. Old? I was seventeen. Oh, you were seventeen. Because you know, eighteen young too. Now. Yeah, I okay. think I was still seventeen. But you weren't legal yet. I don't oh, think I was. Oh my gosh. So um, <laughs> I ended up moving five blocks away from my parents. Um, a friend of mine from church um, had some dysfunction in her home, and I had known for years that she needed to get out. And when I you know, found an apartment. I was kind of like, you want to move with me? You know, which definitely was an eye-opening experience for me living with someone outside of my family. You know, we experienced the typical teenage, young adult. Do you have money for your rent? No, I spent it on shopping. <laughs> you 
know, like, where are we going to come up with rent type of situation? <laughs> it was fun. You know, it was it was challenging. There were times we had no food and we were like oodle and noodle in it out. Like every night we'd be like, you make it oodles and noodles. Um, so it was a good experience, but I was definitely probably not ready <laughs> for that experience that young. Uh, but it definitely was good. Okay. So then you, know, you moved out, you got this dental career going. You're still engaged with your church life? I am actually. Okay. Yeah. I was still going to church. I just um, was going to a different um, church in a different location, not the one I grew up in. I had had to kind of walk away from that and I was going to a church out in Bowie. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so how did you meet your, your first husband? Then? So yes. Um, I have been married before Russell, for all of y'all that do not know that. Um, Russell was not my first husband. I got married very young. That's your last one. Though. Yeah, he's my last, for sure. Um, but yes, yeah, so my first husband, I met him actually in the church lobby um, after service one night. And um, he came up to me. He was a tall, large build Spanish man um, who was extremely charismatic. Well, this is this is the funny story about the Spanish man. Okay, y'all. Now I'm glad I told you that I'm naive because I'm gonna tell on myself right now. You might not even know this story, so please don't judge no, me. I'm, hey, no judgment. So he starts trying to ask me out, and I'm like, no. And he's he's so like persistent. He is not giving up. And I say to him, "What do you need? A green card?" <laughs> not realizing that Puerto Ricans are American. Yes, I told you I'm going to out myself. That's, okay? Yeah, that's not funny. Enough. I mean, it's I funny, young, but it's not funny. I was people. like, <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, my God. I know. It was it was embarrassing. And he's like, I don't need a green card. But see, that was the environment I was raised in. Let's go back and let's be honest. This was the environment I was raised in. Um, and also, like, in my mind, why would he want me? Um, why would he be interested in me? So okay. he, he was working in a recovery, a mission. He was, he was in the mission field, quote unquote, I'm doing my air quotes. Um, he was working in a recovery program that was called teen challenge. And for all of you that don't know what that is, it's not for teens, which people think because of the name, they assume okay. it's for teen. It's not. I'm it's, learning. I'm learning here with y'all too. Yeah, so It's not ahead. for teens. Um, it is a program for men and women. There's different uh-huh. women programs also um, to help them get off of drugs. Okay. Um, he was working there because he had a past. Um, he was raised, born and raised in Puerto Rico, um, to a single mom. And, um, he had a lot that had gone on in Puerto Rico and he had fled Puerto Rico to the United States. The story that he told me was that he had robbed drug dealers. Mm. Um, and he had enough money to get on a plane. He taped the money to his body because there was a lot of money. So he put some in his bag, some here, some there, some in his shoes, and then the rest- This is had, pre-9-11 TS. This is pre-9-11. Before it was even TSA. Yes, yes, okay, yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes, yes, yes. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, if you get ready. Yep, <laughs> yeah, this was, this was a long time ago. Even um, a domestic flight, you might not, anyway. And so he came to New York and knew very few people and eventually, you know, I don't, I don't remember if I'm being honest, all the ins and outs of how he ended up in Teen Challenge, but he ended up working for Teen Challenge. He was right under the executive director. Um, and so I had a little hesitation when I met him because I was like, you know, you have this past, obviously you had done drugs, you've been involved with drug dealers, you had lived a somewhat of a criminal life, you know, robbery, he robbed some drug dealers. So he was involved in that. Um, but in the environment that I was raised in and in the environment of that church, it was like, God can redeem anybody. Um, you should never judge him on his past and all of those things, which I, I co-signed for. And I a hundred percent, you know, thought that 
um, not only had God redeemed him, but he wanted to continue a life that was pleasing to God. So, so what values were you raised with or, or what was going on in the church that, that made you feel like you, you know, that was important or you had to get married so young? So, I mean, I guess it was kind of learned behavior and, and what was modeled for me. My parents met when I think my mom was like 13 or 14 and they got married incredibly young. Uh, both of my older sisters got married very young. And honestly, in that church environment, it was very like glamorized that that is what you do. You get married young because it was better to marry than to burn and have sex before marriage. So is that how old were you roughly? Like 21. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got you. Yeah. So it was, it was very much a thing, you know, I, I know different circles and different cultures and different families, you know, some say, no, go to college and, you know, get that under, get your degree under your belt and then consider marriage. That was not something that was ever really pushed on us at all. It was, it was always, you get married, you have a family, this is what God has designed for you. Hmm. Um, and also just the, the, the Pentecostal church environment, you know, it was very much true love waits. I went through that whole, you know, thing of women and how we're supposed to act and how we're supposed to dress and wait till you're married. The, the purity culture. The purity culture. Yeah. 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 So yeah. all of that had something to do with it too, because you can't ask someone to remain pure, most people, and not get married till 30. <laughs> like that's, you know, kind of doesn't really happen that often, honestly. So it would, had a lot to do with the environments that I was raised in. Remain pure. I have a whole lot of thoughts on that, but this is not my podcast. Uh, we can talk about it. <laughs> we should. We should. So anyway, what were some of the um, struggles you faced? You know, you got married 21. You know, what were some of the struggles you faced um, in, in, in that marriage and what ultimately happened? So shortly after we got married, um, he had a falling out with Teen Challenge. And um, the director of that ministry let him go or he got fired. I don't honestly remember all the details around that. And that was the beginning of his path back to drugs. So when he couldn't find work when coming out of ministry, um, he quickly went back to street life. So it was selling this and selling that and doing cell phones and then making deals. It was like it was like the drug culture, but without the drugs. It was like, okay. I'm going to trade well, you this for that. And then we're going to do this on the sly. And we're going to meet in the back parking lot. It just was like, and he got sucked right back into that that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, shortly you know, into our marriage, I started noticing things that I thought were odd. But coming from a life that I didn't know drugs, I didn't know what was going on. So he would have food poisoning all the time. All the time, all the time. I know you're looking at me like I'm crazy. I am crazy because I believe this. He would be sick for days on end and he'd be like, I got food poisoning. And I'm like, you are about the most food poisoning person I've ever seen because you have food poisoning constantly. And it wasn't food poisoning. It was him coming off of a drug. And he would tell me that it was food poisoning. So I would believe him. Um, and I just started seeing like he wouldn't be where he said he was going to be. And then he wouldn't come home for hours and then he would disappear. You know, so I started kind of putting two and two together to realize that something wasn't right. Um, I think it really came to a head for me when he called me and didn't know how to get home. He was so high on drugs. He oh, did not wow. know how to get back to our home that we lived in. Wow. And I had to be like, where are you? And so I gave him like a turn to turn to get him back home. Now thinking about it, 
I'm like, oh my God, I should have never let him drive. I should have went and got him. But I didn't know because I didn't, I wasn't as educated. I didn't know. This is how dumb I was. He comes home and he tells me he did an eight ball. I still don't really know what that is. And I get out a cup and I get out a a salt shaker and I tell him to show me how much drugs. Yes. Show me how much drugs you did. Like that's a thing. And I'm like, and he's like, he's all high. I had to put him in the shower and get him showered down. I'm trying to figure out if I'm taking him to an urgent care. I mean, it was, it, it was mind blowing. And I did not know what to do. Like at all. I didn't know. I had no one to turn to. There was nobody from my church upbringing mm-hmm. or my past that I could go and talk to about this. I didn't know anybody in my life that had done drugs or had even, I even knew if they knew it, had a family member. So was, it, so was it a matter of just not knowing who to go to, who could, who could practically provide help? Or was there an element of like shame and embarrassment? About oh, it? huge element okay. of shame and embarrassment. Okay. Because here I am, you know, married to someone who was in ministry, quote unquote. Right. And now all of a sudden they're a full-blown drug addict. Right. I, I had couldn't talk to anybody. So as the drugs started to get worse, the adultery started to begin because he had a hard time doing what he called copping drugs. Um, because he looked clean and nice and somewhat professional, he'd go to downtown Baltimore. Nobody would sell to him. So then he'd have to find women that he would start engaging in a relationship with them so that then they could go cop drugs together. Um, and so that though became a whole thing. And, um, as I was writing and thinking about this, I remember one time tracking him down to a hotel room. And her answering the phone, a woman answering a phone Mm. and basically telling me, I can't get him on the phone. He's so high right now. He's, he's not going to be able to get on the phone. Right. And it just, and I put up with that for a good amount of time. Months, years. Years. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Two to three years of putting up with that until it finally got so bad. And I recognized, and there was other episodes physically, he took a whole computer and threw it at me one time in the midst of him being so high, he, he disappeared. One time he disappeared to New York for days and I had no idea. I mean, there was no tracking people back then. I had absolutely no idea where he was. Um, it was just really, really tough. So it was after one of those trips that he disappeared for a few days, he came back and I had had his bags packed. Um, and I had told him you're going to rehab or you're leaving, pick one. And he chose rehab and I ended up um, paying for him to go to a rehab center in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I got him a ticket. I got him in the center and I sent him off. Mm. Um, he, he lived in Detroit, Michigan for almost a year. And, he, and this is how crazy it is. It was Teen Challenge in Detroit, Michigan. Mm. Um, the, the executive director of the one he had worked at helped me get him there. But we wanted him to be somewhere he didn't know anybody. Right. Because he had had so much clout within this region that I he needed to be somewhere where they were going to treat him like they would treat everybody else and not give him any type of cut cards. Um, so he went to Detroit, Michigan and for months he wrote and I wouldn't respond and I was kind of done. And then, you know, with all of the church and, you know, you should give him another chance and, you know, all the things that I was encouraged and told to do, um, I did. And Mm -hmm. I started to forgive him and I went out and visited him um, I went actually twice uh, to Detroit, Michigan. Once I went with people, and then once I went completely by myself. And it, it's a rough town, I got to say. <laughs> For a naive white woman that grew up in this church environment, you know, it, it 
I definitely got the lights turned on for me being in Detroit, Michigan by myself because he could not leave the center. So I'd have to go in to the hood of these, the center where it was and, um, and visit him there. So while he was there, he decided that he wanted to pursue full-time ministry, but this time he wanted to actually go to college and get, it wasn't just going to be, hi, you're, you're in ministry. It actually was, he wanted to go and do it the right way. Um, and so he had decided that he wanted to go to a Christian college in Pennsylvania. And um, I said, I would support that. Um, at that time, I'd already bought a house here in Crofton. And I found a renter for, which was my home because I was the breadwinner. He didn't have a job or make any money. Um, and I, I put him through college and I moved to Pennsylvania. I lived in college dorm housing, which was very, very interesting. Um, it was an old abandoned um, army base that had not been remodeled that much, let me just say. And uh, I lived there on campus with him and his full time, all he had to do was go to school and get his degree. And after being there for about six months to a year, he couldn't do that. He went back to drugs. He would find any way to get them, even going as far as like going to the local clinic and acting like he had ADHD to get Ritalin so he could snort it. Um, it, it was anything to get him high. Mm. Um, he ended up cheating with some young girls on campus. Um, he got pulled in because they had reported that they were having relations with a married student on campus. Um, and so I got pulled in on that also, which was completely humiliating. Um, and after I realized that he's just not going to get this together, I said, you know what, if this is what you're going to do, you can do this back in Maryland where I have a support system because I can't, I can't stay here any longer and do this. So um, he got kicked out of the college. They asked him to leave because he couldn't get his behavior together. And um, we moved back to Maryland. And within just a few weeks of us moving back to Maryland, um, he was already back out and doing drugs and doing his thing and disappearing for days on end. And at that point I had just, I'd had it. And one of his times that he had gone out, I changed the locks and I was, I said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. So you filed for divorce. So I started the process of filing for divorce, mm -hmm. but the problem was I couldn't find him. He was on the streets. Oh, to like serve him. Or... Could not serve him. Right. Could not find him. God. Could not locate him. And mm. that went on for quite some time until one day he called me from a street corner in DC in a very bad area and said, I have nothing. I have no clothes. I have no possessions. I have no money. I, I literally am standing here with nothing. And I'm told him, do not mistake my kindness for weakness, but I will get you in a hotel tonight. If you promise me, you'll go to rehab tomorrow. And he did. I ended up getting him back in the same teen challenge that he originally worked at. And I paid for him to go there. And the reason is, honestly, it's because I knew if I could find him and keep him somewhere for a so short period of time, I could get him served mm. and we could and I could proceed with the divorce. Um, and, and that is what happened. And he stayed there for a little bit long enough for us to start the divorce. And I will tell you, he was very persistent about alimony. He wanted alimony very, very badly because I had been the breadwinner the whole marriage. And I still had possessions in the, the apartment that we had shared at that time um, that he wanted. And he wanted very ridiculous things like a, a laptop, some jerseys, and some watches that were his. And he agreed to sign off on alimony 
in exchange for those few material items, which he did. And I was fine with that because I didn't want to continue to have the fight with him. <laughs> right. So he ended up um, going and- So how old were you at this point? 25, 26. Okay. So basically a four mm -hmm. or five year marriage. Yep. How did uh, this divorce impact you? Where were you? Where did you find yourself at this point, div Whew. divorce, mid twenties? I was incredibly hurt. I was disappointed. I was angry with God because I trusted, mm. I trusted God that he was going to help keep him clean, that mm. he, you know, that he wanted this, you know, that my ex wanted this bad enough that he would stay clean and God would give him the strength. And I was so, so devastated. Also, you got to remember, there is no divorce in my family. I, well, this is what I was told at that time, because we didn't talk about stuff because everything we had to be perfect. I was it was presented to me that there's never been divorce in my family. My parents weren't divorced. My grandparents weren't divorced. My sibling, None of my siblings are divorced. Still to this day, none of my siblings are divorced. I'm the only one. And so a lot of shame was put on me that I was going to be the first mm -hmm. in, our, in this history of our family to have gone through a divorce. And so that weighed on me. And that honestly, that's probably what made me keep forgiving and keep welcoming him back and saying, okay, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. You know, I'm going to give it another chance because I didn't want to go through the embarrassment and the shame. Um, I trusted that God had a purpose for his life and that he was going to help him. And, but I realize now that, that he had to be willing and he wasn't willing. So it wasn't my anger with God at that time was not justified. It was, God can't make you do something. He had to want it and he did not want it. And honestly, guys, still to this day, he is still on drugs and is married again and divorced and just, it's still a very sad. So I know I couldn't have quote unquote saved him. Although for years I thought that I could, and I know that I couldn't have. Um, but divorce is really painful. And I don't think people talk about that enough. I think there's a lot of misconceptions of like, girl, you can do better than that. Or girl, he ain't treating you right. There's a man out there that will. And nobody really thinks through the trauma and the difficulty of divorce. You know, you share your life with somebody, you tell them everything. They know every detail about you. They've lived with you. They know, you know, all your junk. And then all of a sudden in one day, this person is your biggest enemy and they're carrying around everything about you and they can tear you down and hurt you in the deepest places like nobody else because they know everything and they will. Um, very, You feel very alone in divorce because the friends that you have sometimes have to make a choice. You know, they the church people would not know how to how to like talk to you or like, is everything okay? But they didn't really want to know, you know, because you'd probably start busting out crying. Um, and then there's trauma that stays with you. And then you know this, there are still struggles today that I struggle with. And we, what I, I believe we have a very healthy marriage, my husband and I right now, and I still have to deal with the trauma from then. Just recently, Russell went out in the morning to get bread because our daughter wanted something for breakfast that required bread and we were out of bread. So he gets in the car to run down the street. I'm freaking out having a panic attack because in my mind, he's now left me. <laughs> and he's like, honey, I'm going to get some bread. And But everything in me is like, here we go again. He's left me because that's what... I had experienced for 
so much of that marriage was he would just up and leave and then be gone for days on end. Um, as I look back on everything with my first marriage, you know, I'm angry with myself that I allowed myself to deal with that and put up with that for as long as it did. I know that God will use that to help other women and God already has because there's plenty of women in my life that know um, of my first husband in divorce. I'm disappointed I wasn't stronger, but um, I'm not living in that disappointment. I am instead sharing it and being vulnerable and trying to help other people to know that if you are in a marriage that is tough. Now, if you're in a marriage that's abusive or, you know, really dangerous for you, then yes, do what's best for you. Get out, protect yourself. Well, this has been a great episode too. Why don't you uh, conclude by uh, giving our audience some encouragement as we conclude today? All right. Sounds great. So I think the, the first thing I would say is don't should yourself. I definitely did that for a long time. Um, I shouldn't have done this. I should have done that. You know, I shouldn't have been so stupid. And I realized that, yes, I probably shouldn't have put up um, with this for as long as I did. But I had to learn to forgive myself for not valuing myself more and staying in that mess. Um, I guess the next takeaway would be if you have a spouse, family member, or loved one who is in active addiction, um, I know how you feel. I have been there. I know you feel like you're all alone and you have no one to turn to. Um, and I want to give you just some real tangible resources. Um, and that would be Al-Anon would be my recommendation. It is for friends and family of um, addicts. It is free. It is local. I have been to one. I've been to a few actually. Um, you do not have to share. You can just sit there and listen and soak up other people's advice. How, how do you spell that if you want to look it up? Sure, sure. So it is um, capital A-L-A-N-O-N. And you can just put that near me. I believe there's even an app um, that will help you. And in this environment of COVID, there are online Zoom. So you don't even have to get out of your PJs uh, to do it. So I really encourage you to do that because a lot of times I learned this the hard way in recovery, family and friends think that we're helping the addict. We think that, you know, oh, I know what's best for them and let me do it um, or let me make them try to make them do it. And it doesn't work. It makes it worse sometimes. So folks, if you can, um, you know, get out get to a, a meeting, get some resources of people that um, can help you. Uh, most of all around recovery, I kind of want you to understand is that you can't save them. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to accept is, you know, you want this so bad for them, but they have to be willing to save themselves. So work on you instead of focusing all of your energy on trying to figure out how to fix them, because trust me, that doesn't work. Um, the other couple things I wanted to talk about was divorce is trauma, y'all. Divorce is hard. Divorce is painful. Divorce is lonely. Please do not go through this alone. Find a trusted friend, find a therapist or a mentor to walk with you. 
okay? If you're going through a divorce right now, now is not the time to shut people out. You need good, solid, positive people to be there for you and to support you. Um, I am here for you. I truly believe that God has brought me through these challenges to help and bless others. So please feel free to message me on any of my social media. You can text me. You can call me. Um, I've heard from somebody recently that so-and-so wanted to reach out to you, but they didn't. Please, if you feel that nudge, reach out to me. I am here for you. I love you. I care about you. And you're not alone. See you next time. Thanks for listening. I know many of you during this pandemic have been trapped inside and have been itching to travel. Well, we have the travel partner just for you. Axis Luxury Travel, a full service travel concierge company. Now, they've created unique experiences tailored to you, the modern traveler, and they're going to give you way more than you're going to find on any silly Google search. Right. So they've traveled the world and, of course, have been able to personally handpick luxury hotel collections, experiences and so many other amenities just for you so they can make the recommendations with confidence. Why? Because they've experienced it. That simple. So whether you're a solo traveler, a romantic couple looking for a getaway, a family, a large group or a corporation, they can help you make your plans and get you the best deals. Check out AxisTravel.com. That's A-X-E-U-S Travel.com.